0: Tiger Woods, Times Square, the truth will out. We're waiting for Tiger, dozens of us, men with cameras for heads, women clutching clipboards to their chests, sports presenters with powdered noses, and me with a notebook and a voice recorder, two actually, for safety and a crowd of wide-eyed kids waiting with their mothers and fathers and guardians in the corridor of the W Hotel. We've all been here for hours, waiting for our promised moments with the man, waiting for the legend, waiting for the greatest golfer of all time who is so much more than a golfer, so much more than a multimillionaire who hits a tiny white ball into holes. Sport loves hyperbole. Tiger is beyond sport. His father said it would be so. Earl Woods actually said, Tiger will do more than any other man in history to change the course of humanity. That's quite a claim for a boy who hadn't even won a major tournament at the time. And when the reporter listening to that asked Earl if he really did mean that his son would have more of an impact than Gandhi or the Buddha, Earl said yes. He is the bridge between East and West. He is the Chosen One. And now he is coming here, to this place. A concierge sits at a white desk behind a small pair of angel wings sculpted in silver and a sign that says, whatever. Whatever you want, the W Hotel can make it happen, if you can pay. We're just off Times Square, the most electric space, in the most electric city, in the most electric nation on earth. But in here, everyone is meant to be calm and cool. The drifting music, the easeful lighting, the scented candles say, slow down, take it easy, relax, chill. But we can't. None of us can. There are jugs of juice and water, bowls of nuts and balls of melon, but nothing is being touched. Nobody is eating or drinking. Nobody is talking above a whisper. We're all too nervous. There's expectation in the air and awe and fear. The kids from the charity are in awe of Tiger. The staff from the hotel and the foundation too – but maybe the staff are also a little bit afraid of losing their jobs if something goes wrong in the next few moments. The reporters know careers will be made or broken by what happens in this room, and that includes me. I'm nervous, I have to admit. If Tiger will speak to me, I will walk out of here in the spring of 2011 with the first print interview since his fall from Grace, a world exclusive. My editor will be thrilled, the skies will clear, the sun will shine, and I will be a happier, healthier human being. If he doesn't, or if he doesn't say anything remotely interesting, I'll get the sack. I'll lose my job and my income, my children will starve, my love life will disappear, and I will be as dust. So, everyone's on edge. This is what it was like in the halls of Montezuma, in the corridors of Versailles, in the kitchen at Graceland. Suffocating, because there can be no air until he comes. He's late, of course, so we wait, and we wait, and then we don't. The lift light flashes and the doors open, outstep the minders, a couple of retired spooks, I think. They scan the space for trouble, eyes flickering over each of us in turn. Next comes the manager, who looks like a man who is wealthy and powerful and wants to keep it that way. And then, Tiger. Walking with the grace of his namesake. That's true. Looking calm as a heartbeat, dressed all in black from his toes to his throat, save for the bright white Nike tick on his chest. Saying, Nothing. Meeting no eye, making no sound but the swoosh of his trainers on the carpet. All around me, bubbles of excitement burst from the children. But they don't rush him. Nobody does. We all stay back. The silence Tiger keeps is like a hand pushing us back against the walls. The silence says, stay where you are and make no sudden movements. Tiger acknowledges none of us, not even the one guy who does dare approach to clip a mic on a gym-swollen pack. Tiger just stares into space. I've never seen a person more spectacularly, deliberately disconnected from those around him. The silence is a weapon. No, a force field. A shield. This close, though, I can see his eyes are as baggy as they must have been in those sleepless days when scandal first broke around him and his carefully constructed image as a clean-cut, all-American family guy hero fell apart. The passive beauty of his face, so striking in his youth, is hung with shadows. As a man who apparently loves to prowl casinos in search of winnings, and possibly women, He must know that all the odds are in his favour here today. Things have been organised that way. He could afford to smile or say hello to these kids. But he doesn't yet. There's work to do with the journalists. The silence is intimidating. Nobody moves. When a door opens and Tiger turns to enter a makeshift studio in one of the rooms and the door closes behind him, there's a collective puffing of the cheeks. Whoa! Was that for real? Is this how he lives all the time? No wonder he looks so lonely. Tiger Woods didn't choose to be famous at first, of course. That choice was made for him by his dad, who put a golf club in his hands when he was barely old enough to walk but who'd set his mind on a fame way beyond golf for his son. This was always a story about control, but Tiger was not the one in command. Earl Woods served as a Green Beret in the jungles of Vietnam, where he came across psychological warfare. He liked to tell a story about how a snake nearly killed him. It was lying across his face as he woke up from sleep, but his life was saved by a Vietnamese soldier, whose name was Tiger. It wasn't really, that was just what Earl called him. The point is that Earl felt he had been saved for a purpose, which became even more clear to him when his son was born in 1975. The child was registered as Eldrick Tont Woods by his mum, who made the first name up and took the second from Thailand, the land of her birth. Earl called him Tiger, and that was that. Tiger was gonna fulfill Earl's sense of destiny. And to do that, he needed to become the best at something. Earl chose golf. There's no doubt Tiger had a gift for the game. You could see that from the way he swung the club. The arc of the swing was gorgeous to those who knew about such things. And it earned Tiger an invitation to appear on television as a golf prodigy at the age of two. He trotted onto the studio floor to jaunty music, Sesame Street style with an oversized red cap, knee-length shorts and white bobby socks, hauling a little golf bag. The audience went, ah. Earl followed in white pants, a burgundy shirt and a gold medallion. The host and the comedian Bob Hope stood by in crimpleen suits and sideburns as Tiger hit a tee shot. Those golfers watching gasped at the beauty of the swing, and that's the clip you'll find online. That was the footage that helped prepare the way for the coming of Tiger Woods, as if he was his own junior John the Baptist. But something else happened in front of the cameras that day, which was seldom replayed in the years that followed and rarely spoken of again. Tiger was asked to play a short part. He missed. He'd done it a thousand times, even at that age, but the lights were hot, the adults must have loomed large. He took the shot again, and missed again. The pressure had got to him. Earl can't have been pleased. Over the years that followed, he drilled his son over and over again, training him to block out distractions. He'd do everything he could to put the kid off during the swing or the putt, shouting, swearing, kicking the clubs, whatever it took. Army-style discipline was imposed on the little boy. Earl later admitted using military interrogation techniques on his son, which typically would mean destroying Tiger's confidence, then building it up again on new terms. A sports writer who knew them both well said Earl put Tiger through Vietnam on a golf course. He also put Tiger into the hands of an old mate from the Navy a psychologist who hypnotised the boy before and during contests and trained him to use self-hypnosis to get into the zone, so successfully that Tiger later said there were some times and tournaments when he just went blank. I knew I was there, but I don't remember playing the golf shot. That didn't matter. It was working. By the time Tiger turned professional in 1996, he was already famous. He held a press conference to announce his change of status after being signed up for $40 million by Nike, saying simply, Hello world. As the records fell, the dollars flowed, a billion of them, making him the most highly paid sports star of all time. The sponsors adored him. Tiger Woods was young, gifted and black, eloquent and beautiful and victorious. He was following in the footsteps of Muhammad Ali and in some senses preparing the way for Barack Obama. At the time of his first great victory, winning the Masters in 97, the Rodney King race riots in Los Angeles were still a burning memory. No sport was more conservative than golf, whose private clubs were havens for racism and bigotry. You couldn't get in, if he had the wrong skin, the wrong heritage, or the wrong class of parents. Then along came Tiger, breaking all records, on a golf course where no black man had ever played. The only black face you ever saw at the Masters course in Augusta was sweating under the strain of carrying a white man's bags, and they were only allowed to do that seven years before Tiger won. Some people hated him, of course. There were death threats. Damn, he hit the ball so far they even started rebuilding courses around the country, making them longer so it would be harder for him to win. The black basketball star Charles Barkley said, What they're doing to Tiger is blatant racism. But Tiger played it down. He stayed above race rouse. Tiger was a quarter African-American. He was half Asian, one-eighth Native American, one-eighth Dutch. His was the face of the future. Within a decade of that first master's win, scientists would say the perfect face, the one most attractive to most people in most cultures, was now a soft toned synthesis of races, a symmetrical, flawless combination of the Asian, the African and the European, just like Tiger. Earl Woods may have been way over the top with his boasts, but he was basically right in believing that if Tiger could win at sport, then his ethnicity would allow him to have a much wider impact on society. He'd be a hero. Let's think about that. The philosopher Hegel says a true hero is inhabited by the Volksgeist, the spirit of his people. Tiger claimed the people of the world as his people. Whether he knew it or not, Tiger was playing by the rules laid down for a hero since classical times. The hero must be absolutely clear about his purpose and let nothing turn him away. The hero must sacrifice everything for his cause, and Tiger had been taught to do that very early. He was blessed with a skill that seemed supernatural, and he even had a flashing silver blade of sorts, or a whole bag of them. In the absence of war, he proved himself against sporting challenges. In the absence of flesh and blood monsters, he fought inequality and injustice. The true hero must be of value to his community. Tiger was dedicated, courageous and beautiful. Crucially, he also seemed pure in heart. That's always been required of the hero. As he grew from dazzling young challenger to invincible champion, his image grew too. He married the Swedish model Ellen Nordgren, they had two children and now he was a family man. The Tiger Woods Foundation became a serious force for good, distributing millions of dollars, offering real help and hope to children who'd previously had none. This surely provided the platform he would need for a life after golf when he would run for office. Not that there was any sign of his career fading, as he stayed at the top of the rankings for year after year. The world number one was unstoppable. But every hero fails. How did Tiger feel when Earl had a heart attack and died in 2006. Was he lost without his dad? The man who'd chosen fame for him and made it happen? Was that why he blew his reputation, his billion-dollar sponsorship deals, and his father's dream? What would Earl say about all that if he was still alive? I want to know these things. But I'm going to have to be very, very careful about what I ask. This is the most tightly controlled interview I've ever done. The questions have all been approved in advance by email. Although I am planning to risk deviating from the agreed list and take a chance on being thrown out. I've got 15 minutes with Tiger. So a dozen or so questions, depending on how monosyllabic or evasive he chooses to be. Half of them, have to be related in some way to a computer game with his name on. That's the reason I'm being allowed into the presence. Trouble is, my boss doesn't care about the game. He wants to know about Tiger's life, the very thing I am forbidden from mentioning. The magazine has spent a lot of money getting me here. The stakes are high. My head hurts, my palms are sweating, my breathing is shallow. And Tiger Woods is in the room suddenly, offering a hand, but not meeting my eye, of course. There's a poor attempt at a smile plastered over his mouth like a party mask. The television cameras and lights are all off now, but their crews are still there, packing down. Tiger's entourage is with him, maybe half a dozen people, all watching. Um, shall we go into a corner? We pull two chairs close to each other and sit, each leaning slightly forward so we might almost whisper to each other, I wish we could, because there are an awful lot of people here. There's someone from the games marketing team in the US, someone from the UK office, Tigers agent, of course, and someone else whose name and role I don't quite catch, but who's going to become important in a minute. They're all standing over or near us as we sit, listening in, and every one of them has an arm outstretched towards us, over our heads, as if praying, but with a phone or a dictaphone on the end, recording every word. I feel cornered, controlled, trapped under this canopy of hands. It's just us, I say, instinctively, trying to sound calm and like the sort of bloke he'd happily chat to about the secrets of his heart in the next fifteen minutes. Good. That's all he says. My mouth is dry as I thank Tiger for his time. Yeah he says. I ask, because I have to, how the computer game compares with the real Augusta. Obviously, uh, it's not the same experience, but it's as close as it can get. What's amazing, as I was saying, is how closely they have captured the texture of the course. And he's off with a lot of wearily recounted words about how incredibly detailed the game is, so you can see the grass swaying in the wind to an accuracy of six millimetres or something. Blah, blah, blah. I don't care. Do you actually play this game? I ask him. I play as myself. Oh, now that's a great image. The fallen, battered hero slumped on his couch in sloppy shorts, scratching his crotch, like the rest of us, picking up pretzels and sipping a bud, playing the masters one more time through his younger-looking avatar with his younger body. All you have to do, I say, is press the right buttons and success comes to you. Wouldn't it be nice if life was like that, really? It would be nice if golf was a little bit more like that, certainly, he says smoothly. But that's what makes it so difficult. We both know he's struggling at the moment. Only a week ago, he hit a shot in a tournament that was so bad, his playing partner on the day said, it's pretty tough not to have a giggle. I want to ask how it feels to have people who once feared you on the course now laugh at you openly. But again, all I can do is move through the approved questions. I'm not allowed to ask how the death of his father affected him and how life would be different if Earl was still alive. But I can ask how much of an inspiration his father continues to be. It's an anemic question, typical of a sporting interview. But the answer does seem genuine. Oh man, he's always in mind. There's not a day goes by when I don't think about my dad. My dad and I were very, very, very close. I always miss him, especially at certain moments, say, when my children are doing something and I wish he could have seen that. You know, just experiences that you would wish any grandparent could see. My mum is still around. She's able to see it. I wish my dad was around to see it too. My dad has always been close to me. And some of his life lessons resonate within me still. Now that's interesting. His longest answer so far. The popular theory is that Tiger went off the rails because of the death of his dad. Without the man who controlled his life, he didn't know how to behave. So he started taking risks and doing things that hurt those around him. It's convenient pop psychology, but it doesn't ring true to me. The behaviour had already started. When Tiger Woods took the call that told him his dad had died, he wasn't at home with the wife and family, but in a beach hut, having sex with a cocktail waitress. I can't mention that, though, obviously. We're almost knee-to-knee in this hotel room, surrounded by his minders, but we're also completely disconnected from reality. This is the first interview he's given since it all fell apart, but I'm not allowed to ask why that happened. So, as a reminder, this is how it unfolded. The National Enquirer ran a story in November 2009 saying he'd been having an affair with a nightclub promoter in New York called Rachel. A few days later, Tiger somehow crashed his Cadillac into a fire hydrant outside a neighbor's house at two in the morning. There were reports of his wife, Ellen, running after the car during an argument and smashing the rear window with a golf club in anger. Tiger said his wife had actually broken the window to rescue him from the car. He announced a break from golf, saying, I need to focus my attention on being a better husband, father and person. Over the next few months, more women either came forward or were named as his lovers. There was Jamie, a cocktail waitress, Jamie, a different person with one less E, Kalika, Mindy, Corey, Holly, Julie, Teresa, Loredana, Jocelyn, Emma, Devon, and Rachel, the 21-year-old daughter of a neighbour. Tiger had known her since she was 14. That was said to be the one that caused his wife to fly into a rage. In February 2010, Tiger made an apology in front of television cameras and an invited audience of friends and family members in Florida saying, I was unfaithful, I had affairs, I cheated, what I did is not acceptable, and I am the only person to blame. Tiger said he'd come to believe normal rules didn't apply to him, but then he'd been trained that way. He didn't say that last bit I did. What he said was that now he realised that was wrong, he was sorry for the hurt he'd caused. The damage was done though to the women and commercially. When Tiger returned to compete in the Masters at Augusta that April coming forth, the chairman of the event told the press our hero did not live up to the expectations of the role model we saw for our children. The hero must be morally pure or else he will lose his power. That's the way it's always been since the beginning of story. This Champion of justice and equality had been caught treating women in a sleazy and exploitative way. He departed from his role, broken the deal. Gillette, Tag Ur, Accenture all dropped Tiger responses, along with ATT, and so his earnings fell by nearly a million dollars a week. Ellen and Tiger Woods were divorced in August 2010, and she walked away reportedly with a hundred and ten million dollars so if Earl was still around to see all that had happened what would he say I know I shouldn't ask that but I dare to because he just let his guard down and was briefly so tender about his dad as soon as I do the chorus around us collectively jumps looks are exchanged but Tiger answers um keep working hard Keep believing yourself. Keep working hard. Stay the course. Meditation helps, he says. He's embraced his mother's Buddhism more fully. He does seem extraordinarily still at all times. Is that from the meditation? I hope so. He may be calm, but I'm not. Nine minutes in and I haven't really got much to write about. Time to step things up. Tiger. You recently said winning a major was no longer the most important thing in your life. What did you mean? No! That's the voice of one of the minders, interrupting quickly before Tiger can answer. We, uh, Cole, we talked about that question in particular. He tells me it was removed from the list of pre-approved questions. Just move on. It's that or close down. That's clear. So, yes, let this game of chess continue. Um, here's my next move. The Tiger Woods Foundation is so successful. Would you ever think of taking that work further by running for office? This is a spring-loaded question for someone who was once regarded as a future American president, but must now know that there is no way he could get elected. But Tiger's good. He's seen it coming and has an answer ready. Well, I'm going to try and build this thing globally. No mention of politics. He's winning at this interview. The minders look satisfied again. We're 13 minutes and 26 seconds into our 15-minute session, according to the display on the voice recorder. Trust me, I look. And I'm beginning to despair. Just then, though, he says something really interesting out of nowhere. I'm not going to be doing this forever. I'm not going to be playing golf forever, there's no doubt, especially at a competitive level. Maybe playing with friends, family, whatever, but at this level, I'm not going to be doing it forever. What? Champions just don't talk like this. Great athletes can't afford to contemplate failure. Tiger Woods has always insisted that he's on his way back, that he can dominate the sport again. And yet here he is saying, no, he's not invincible. He can't go on forever. There's something in his tone too, cracked, vulnerable, honest, just for a second, like something in the question earlier about his father opened him up and was just sort of there under the surface and came out. The truth will out. We've all got things we really want to say, even when we're told we shouldn't, by our minders, our bosses, ourselves. Stuff that sits there inside, desperate to come up. Like one of those toy submarines you play with in the bath. However much you push it down with your fingers, however long it stays submerged, it will always come to the surface in the end. And I think that's what's happening here, just for a fleeting moment. The minders can't interrupt. Tiger's the boss, and he started talking about this. So I can ask him, how long does he think he has left? I don't know. I don't know what that day is. But when that day comes, I will know. How? I'll just know. So that's what I write when he's shaken my hand and left the room. Tiger Woods, I know I can't go on forever. It's obvious in a way, but it also seems horribly like a prophecy in the weeks and months and years that follow as he falls further and further down the rankings and fails to make the cut in tournaments. Tiger Woods is now a long way from being Gandhi or the Buddha or even Lee Westwood, who was buying instant mash in a supermarket in WorkSop when he took the call to say he was the new number one. Tiger's swing His beautiful swing is destroyed by a bad back. Doctors fuse together the most painful vertebrae in his spine, which most people think means the end of his hopes of returning to the top level of the game. The painkillers become addictive. He's found unconscious behind the wheel of his car on the Florida highway, stationary in a lane of traffic with other vehicles swerving to miss him. His police mugshot shows him looking Weary, haggard, broken. He hasn't won a major tournament since we spoke, and almost everyone says he never will now. The day he knew was coming has come. Tiger Woods is finished. But then... Something extraordinary happens, even by the standards of sport, which, as I say, loves hyperbole. Eight years after our interview, two years after hitting rock bottom on the Florida highway, Tiger returns to the Masters at Augusta and becomes a contender again. He's wearing the same kind of bright red shirt and black baseball cap as when he won it for the first of five times in 1997, and... From a distance, he looks like his younger self. Like the avatar in the computer game, actually. The walk has changed, though. So has the swing and the face close up. Against all the odds, he's still in touch with the leaders on the final day. One by one, they drop shots and start to blow their chances. Tiger. Doesn't look nervous at all. His face is as blank and impassive as it was when he walked down that corridor in the W Hotel. Silence, or at least self possession, is his shield again in the midst of the deafening roar of the crowd at the 18th hole. Nothing and nobody can touch him. He's making sure of that. He shouldn't be here. He shouldn't be winning. This Shouldn't be happening. It doesn't make any kind of sense except to dreamers. Tiger Woods wins the Masters by a single shot. And then he cracks, grinning, looking bewildered. The cap comes off to reveal a sweaty, whitened, balding forehead. And suddenly he's not young Tiger Woods anymore. It's a shock to see the true age of the man in his 40s who has achieved the completely impossible and matched his younger self. When Tiger won here for the first time all those years ago, he was hugged by his father. This time, the middle-aged man defying time bends down to pick up and hug his own son, Charlie, aged nine. His daughter, Sam, and his mother, Tilda, are there too. Somebody mentions Al, and Tiger says... Life goes on, but there's been one continuity through it all. My mum was there. Look at her face. He's still her little boy. This big, weary champion. More so than ever without Earl dominating. Very few people have ever really known what was going on inside the head of Tiger Woods. Just like... We don't know why he treated those women so very badly. There's no excuse for that. No excuse for all the hurt he caused. And there's no real redemption to be gained from hitting a ball into a succession of holes with a stick. Whatever stories we tell about it for entertainment. But I do want to believe in change. I want to believe that the truth, when it's said, will set us free somehow. And I do believe that none of us lives in isolation, however big a shield we put up. We're changed by the people around us. And I remember something he said in the W Hotel, I am trying to become a better person. I am trying to become a better person with my kids, a better father. That was the aspiration he repeated through the confessions and the attempted comebacks. When we met, he seemed... Utterly disconnected, isolated, alone, lost, like a man trying to find his way back home. As I watched Tiger Woods, after his astonishing win at the Masters, hug his daughter, his son and his mum. I can only hope he's found it. Thank you for listening. I'm Cole, and this is Can We Talk? True stories about encounters with remarkable people and what they tell us about how to live, really. Can We Talk? is brought to you by Hodder Faith. I'd love to hear your stories. Would you share them with me? I'm on all kinds of social media as Cole Morton. Or you can get in touch, find out more, and read other people's stuff at the website hodderfaith.com Thank you.